Let's turn back this morning to the book of Matthew chapter 10, where we left off last week, considering in particular Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. But as we begin this message, we'll read verses 16 through 24. And we'll try to share with you the basic thoughts of these verses just to give you a flavor of the context in which Jesus makes the statement that we want to be the passage of Scripture that you remember as we read in the Psalms, that you would hide it in your heart, that way we would have application of his word and wisdom from his word. Jesus says in Matthew ten sixteen, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye to another, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come." The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. This message continues, and I would encourage you all to read it and to learn and study out the things that Jesus says to his apostles as he originally commissions them to go out and to preach the word. But I believe that the passages that we read are enough to give us a good deal of context about what Jesus instructed them to be wise as serpents and to be harmless as doves. And those are going to be the words that we really want you to remember. We really want to be emphasized for you today, to be wise as a serpent and to be harmless as a dove. To review what we studied last week, particularly at the close of our message, to bring us up until this point in Matthew chapter 10, The first thing that we talked about last week was that Jesus has instructed his church, particularly the ministry, as we find in some old writings, the common opinion of our sound and studied forefathers that Christ gave the Great Commission primarily to the apostle and through them to the gospel ministry of every age. Jesus commands his apostles And through them, Jesus commands his ministers to go and to preach, to make disciples, to make disciples of all nations, we read in Matthew 28, to go teach all nations, or perhaps in Mark's gospel, to preach the gospel to every creature. And then after we have discipled them, we are to baptize them. And after we baptize them, we are to continue teaching them and further instruct them in all things that... God would have them to know all things that Christ has commanded us. And lo, Jesus is with us even to the end of the world. Amen. And so the task of the church in the world isn't national reform or maybe you could look at it from the perspective of self-help or any other thing that so many times American Christians are sidetracked with. The ministry of the church is to go and make disciples of Christ. And so in a very distracted age, in a very confusing age, what God would have us to know, what God expects of us, what my job in the world is above every other thing, is to go and to make disciples of his children, to make students of Christ, and to fill his house with his children hungry and eager to hear his word. And that's what we live for. 
That's why we live stream. It's why we have a radio program. It's why we have podcasts. It's why we go to various places, anywhere in town that gives me an opportunity to come and to speak to them. I'll at least go once. And I will share the Word of God because God has called me in particular to preach His Word. But as we saw from Acts chapter 8, when the apostles were, or when the disciples were persecuted, rather, and the apostles stay in Jerusalem, but the Christians flee at the persecution of Saul, all of them went everywhere preaching the gospel. And that sort of church atmosphere where we all are just continually sharing the Word of God with others in our community, that's something that we need to reclaim as Christians, but especially as primitive Baptists. We go everywhere that we go preaching, sharing, teaching the Word of God. Now, sometimes we outright share the Word of God. Sometimes it's just a matter of letting our speech be seasoned with the salt of the grace of God from His Word. We simply speak in biblical language, and we Believe me, people notice when you do something right and you say, well, God just really blessed or, you know, something happens and it's a good thing and you thank God for his providence. People notice that the speech of a Christian is to be different speech than the speech of the world around us. And I think that's one of the greatest handicaps of the American version of Christianity at present. And I've, I've made the comment so many times that American culture in general has been moral enough and churchy enough that sometimes it's hard to find the line between the Christian and just the American that's been taught to say, God bless America, and give the, the various sort of patriotic slash religious, religiosity type statements that we all grew up hearing. But the church, the Christian, is to be out making disciples everywhere that he goes. And that was the main point of last week's message. But when we go make disciples and when we go teach the Word of God and we share the Word of God with people, we need to know how to do that. Now, one of the most dangerous things in the world is a person with a whole lot of zeal and just a little bit of knowledge. Because then we go about doing things the way that we think they ought to be done and Lord knows that's where we've ended up with every different type of faction of Christian in the last 2,000 years when someone without being armed with the Word of God and the knowledge of God's Word goes and does what he feels like he ought to do without knowing what God in the Bible actually tells him to do. And so from the book of Matthew chapter 10, we looked at Jesus' pattern for the spread of the church in the world. And if you look through church history, this is how it happened in the United States. It's how it happened in the first century in Judea, but it's also how it happened throughout the book of Acts. And it's simply this, God sends men. God sends men. You know, there's been a microphone here for 15 years. And, and for some reason today, I'm going to punch it because for some reason I can't see it unless I'm looking at it. So anyway, God sends men, sends men out. The men go and they preach the word. But notice very carefully from Matthew 10 that the men go into a city. Now, caveat, when Jesus speaks these words to these men, as you notice in verse 6, they go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus initially sends the ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To the sheep, everybody get that word in your mind, sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus doesn't send them to preach the gospel of comfort and peace and assurance to the goats of Israel. He doesn't send them to give assurance to those that are of their father, the devil, in Israel, but he sends them to the sheep. Now, we love that doctrine here. We love that doctrine among our people. We love to relish in the fact that Christ has sheep throughout this world and we as ministers are sent to find them and to gather them into our individual little flocks. That's what evangelism is all about. But at this point, they're sent to the lost sheep. Now, there would be a time when Jesus would commission them to go preach the gospel to every creature. Now, how is that different in Mark 16 or Matthew 28 than right here? They're to go to all nations. They're to go to every creature and preach the gospel. Does that mean that we preach it to animals? Certainly not. Certainly not. We don't go and we, we don't preach to, to Labradors or cats or birds or farm animals. Obviously, something special is under consideration when he says every creature. The primary focus of that is not just Jews, 
but indiscriminately to all people. But as we'll see today, there's even some wisdom that we need to employ in our thought process when we go preach to every creature. There are some creatures that we might preach to as they bring us before them in persecution. Now, an example of that, let's say you're a Christian in China. I made mention last week of the fact that there are some 300 million Christians expected to be in China in the next decade. That's almost how many people live in the United States. Well, if you're a Christian in China, you need to be wise as a serpent. You need to know that there are some people that you don't preach to unless you're drawn before them, arrested for being a Christian. And we'll see this depicted from the book of Acts today where there were some people that as Paul goes about his ministry that he kind of takes a long way around because he knows if he's before them, they're going to persecute him. And so there are people that Paul would avoid in his ministry to avoid persecution, to continue sharing the word with the sheep. At this point, they go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you might wonder, what is it that I need to be sharing with people that I come into contact with each and every week as I share the gospel with them? How do you do that? What do you do? What do you say? Well, there's a great statement right there that you can share. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Unpacked, that is an explosive subject. That is a huge subject. God has dominion in the world. His kingdom is at hand. He has a special people that have been translated from darkness to light who are citizens of it. And through confessing and believing and being baptized, we enter into the gates of it as we live here. As a born citizen of it, we're born of God and we become citizens, but we enter into it. We can go in and out of the gates of the kingdom. We experience life under the kingship of Christ in a special spiritual way in the kingdom of heaven. And so as we go about... You think about this. What if we put the emphasis as American Christians on the kingdom of heaven that we put on the kingdom of the United States of America? You say it's not a kingdom. I know that. But for the sake of this example, what if we talked as much about the church and the Lord as we do the latest scandal of this week? What was the scandal this week? I didn't watch the news intentionally. So I don't know what the scandal was this week, but I know the scandal last week. And I know the scandal the week before, and I know that there's always something that has us absolutely obsessed with America when we should be obsessed with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the message of these men that the world considers to be unlearned and ignorant that go about gossiping the word of God to everyone that they meet and sharing as the church explosively grows like wildfire through this region? What are they talking about? They're talking about the kingdom of heaven. They go everywhere they go talking about the gospel of Christ. If I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of us today went everywhere we went talking about the kingdom of heaven and the gospel of Christ I wouldn't even be able to raise my hand. Now, if you did, praise God. We're going to give you a special medal after church today. If I have to go find a yogurt top out of the back and make you a little medal and some yarn and, you know, just present you with the gold medal for sharing the gospel, then praise God. But I have a feeling so much of this week was devoted to talking about and thinking about things other than the gospel or Christ or the kingdom. And these men were to go and preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They go and they preach. Now you notice verse 8, and this is rehashing some of what we talked about last week. They go and they heal. They heal the sick. They cleanse the lepers. They raise the dead. They cast out devils. And they do it all for free. There's never an invoice. Never does a true gospel minister say, I did X, Y, Z for you. Now here's the invoice. There was a man years ago that, he was my air conditioner man at the time, and his Brother passed away, and I was the only preacher that the entire family knew here. The only preacher that they knew. And so he asked me to do his brother's funeral. His brother was not a very old man. I believe he died of, of lung cancer. He passed away. And after the funeral, the man looks at me and he says, well, send me an invoice. Now, that was kind of an inside joke because every time he leaves my house after fixing my air conditioner dozens and dozens of times until I replace them, he would always say, I'll send you an invoice. I'd say, send me an invoice. And he would, and I would pay it. 
Well, the invoice never came. Why did the invoice never come? Because gospel preachers don't charge for preaching. Does that mean that there's no financial support of the ministry? No, the very next statement that Jesus makes is don't carry gold or silver or brass or script or two coats or shoes or staffs for the workman is worthy of his meat. Meaning that people will say, thank you so much. Here, have this blessing and you take that and you say thank you. And there's this relationship between the preacher and the hearer where there's a voluntary giving and there is never, ever a charge that is put on the preaching of the gospel because freely we have been, uh, we, we have received, freely we give. And Jesus says that freely you have received, freely give. And so they go everywhere and they preach. And as they preach, people are healed. Now, the apostles had a special gift in that day through the Holy Spirit that I don't have, and neither do any of you, to heal the sick and raise the dead. But as we said last week, there is so much healing that comes through the preaching of the gospel. Your hearts are healed from the wounding of the conscience that you have through sin. Oh, what a glorious thing it is to feel the peace that passeth all understanding, knowing that despite your sin, you are yet righteous through Christ in the sight of a holy God. And you don't have to lay in bed at night worrying about where you're going to go when you die because you know that Jesus has taken away all of your sins. That peace passeth all understanding. And that healing comes... With the preaching of the word. You say, I want to feel that healing. Turn off all the media sources that you watch during the week and get in the word and listen to some preaching. And I guarantee you, you will come to church next week feeling better than you would if you listened to everything else this past week but that. And I can guarantee you that from personal experience because more than a decade of my life was devoted obsessively to that stuff. Once you realize it's just there to sell advertising and make the people that own the platform wealthy, you suddenly you see the man behind the curtain and you pay them far less attention. They're peddling it. They're selling it to you. Now, get your mind in the Word. Preach the kingdom of heaven. Healing will be given to those that hear it. Jesus gets specific about what we might call church planning and there are some that like to apply this just to first century Judea, but the argument that I would present to them is we find this same pattern everywhere that Paul goes. We find it when he went into Asia Minor. We find it when he went into Eastern Europe, when he went to Philippi. We find it in Thessalonica. We find it in everywhere that he went where the Word of God was received. He goes into a city... They find a house that is worthy, as it were. The Son of Peace is there. Christ is there. People changed by Christ are there. They receive the Word. That's how you know they're changed by Christ, because the gospel brings life and immortality to light. It illuminates the fact that God is living in the hearts of those people. You preach to them. They join in with you, and you stay there in their home. Remember, all of the first century churches were planted where? Where did they meet? They met in homes. And so you go into a home, you stay in the home, you study there, you worship there. There were times Paul goes into a house, he preaches until midnight, some little guy falls out the window and dies. I guess he breaks his neck. Paul raises him from the dead and he preaches to the guy till daylight. I've made the joke before, you couldn't die to get out of his preaching. You think I'm long-winded? Nobody's died yet. I hope that nobody does. You know that sometimes I say something, Rachel says, you better not say that out loud because if that happens, you're going to feel really bad. Well, if you do pass away here in a sermon, I hope it's not because of the sermon anyway. You know, preachers used to kind of romanticize the idea of dying in the middle of a sermon. And uh, Brother Jerry, his, his grandfather actually passed away in a sermon, preaching a sermon in the middle of a church service. And my dad has seen that happen too down in South Alabama. That is terrifying when that happens when you're there. I do not want to die in the middle of a sermon. You know, could you imagine everybody thinking, was it something he said? Anyway, I don't want to die in a sermon. This guy falls out a window and dies, but he's in a house. Paul goes from house to house to house. When we first began having our Bible study, we had it in homes because we were just a small little group. I think 
half, either half today, and today is a small crowd for us, but either half would be the total crowd that we had 15 years ago. And so we would just have Bible studies in homes, and we called it house to house. I thought that was a very catchy thing for marketing, and we had a good time. This church was founded in a home in 1808, founded in the home of a brother named James Deaton in Killingsworth Cove, just a few miles away from here. It's a beautiful place, too. Absolutely gorgeous, God's country-type scenery if you ever drive into Killingsworth Cove. This church was founded in a house. When you go into a new city, you find a house that the Son of Peace is in, that Christ is in, and you stay in that house. You don't go house to house, but you stay there. And what Christ is doing, what Jesus is doing, is teaching us that when we go into a community, we go to a central location, we find a receptive audience, and we stay there. Now, you might go out and gossip the word everywhere you go, but there's a central location that you're bringing other people to so that they can hear the word. And this is what real establishment of churches looks like. Now, so many times in, in American Christendom, you have folks that go door to door, and they'll, they'll lead you through a little talk on, you know, calling on the Lord, and then you, in their opinion, get saved, and then they say, well, congratulations, guess I'll see you in heaven, and they just walk off and leave. But biblically, when evangelism happened, you, first of all, have somebody that's referred to as someone that the Son of Peace is in. You preach to them, they're converted, they become a disciple, they're baptized, and after their baptism, you continue training them in everything that God would have you to know and do, Matthew 28. And so any form of, quote, evangelism that does not continue to instruct and teach God's disciples after their conversion and their baptism is not the biblical mode. You say, well, it, it gives people something to do. <laughs> well, that's not what this is about, giving people something to do or making them feel good, or any other thing. We go and we disciple people. That's what we're told to do. Not just say, have you heard about Jesus? Let me tell you about him. Oh, yeah, great. You received it. See ya. No, we're to go disciple them. We gather them. We round them up. You cannot separate the church from evangelism in the Word of God. But wherever there is evangelism, there is church. And where there is church, there is evangelism. They are inseparable. And might I borrow from the language of Christ regarding marriage, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. We cannot separate. Biblical missions, biblical missions as it were, is not taking a bunch of young people to Six Flags under the guise of a mission trip. You say, nobody does that. Yes, they did when I was in high school. It was a youth mission to Six Flags. What? Look, call it what it is. Now, I don't mind. If we all want to go to Six Flags, praise God, let's go to Six Flags. But I'm not going to call it evangelism unless we're standing outside preaching to people and then taking them to baptize them and putting them in churches out there. You know, so much of what's called missions today doesn't look anything like biblical missions, which was our problem with it back in the mid-19th century. When these men went and published the Word of God, they stay with people, they grow those people. Paul stayed in these cities long enough to ordain other ministers and leave those faithful men over the flocks as he goes to another location. At times when there were not yet men there and Paul had to go somewhere else, do you know what he would do? He would leave a part of his entourage there as he goes to a new place. We see that when Paul goes into Athens. Who did he leave behind? He left behind Timotheus. And I believe Silas, he leaves them behind, and then later he calls for them to join him in Athens. In the book of Titus, what had Paul left Titus to do on the island of Crete? To set in order things that are wanting, and what? Ordain elders in every city. You say, you know, people want to be a missionary, great. You need to be an ordained elder that goes into a community so that you can preach and then administer the ordinance of baptism and baptize people and stay there long enough to train a man to replace you as minister as you go somewhere else. That's what biblical evangelism looks like when you go into a place where the Word of God is not preached. And Jesus is giving the example of that here in Matthew 10 and in other places. This sermon occurred more than one time in the Gospels. Now, 
The last thing he tells them is when they reject you, take your shoes off. If you find no receptive audience in a community, take your shoes off and shake the dust of your shoes off as a testimony against them. That's something that we all need to learn and understand. When there is absolute rejection to what we teach, then we back away. Because it's not between us and them, it's between them and the Lord. And if they outright reject what he teaches, well, you shake the dust of your shoes off as a testimony against them, and you go about to another audience, and you go somewhere else. That's good wisdom for this life. Now, verse 16. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. We're going to go by this, or through this, verse by verse, briefly, and then come back to this statement wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Jesus tells these apostles, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. When young men are ordained, they think, this is going to be great. Everybody's going to love me. You know, preachers are popular people. I can go out, everybody will shake my hand. They'll know me in the community. Oh, it'll be great. No, <laughs> no, they won't. They'll see you coming. They'll go the other way. Oh, there he is, way over there in Walmart. Let's go. Go this way. Don't go that way. If he's going that way, we're going this way. People avoid preachers. I know that's hard to believe, right? Because none of you would ever avoid me in Walmart. Nobody laughed, so that must mean it was true. <laughs> I understand, you know, it's kind of the thing. But he sends them not to be popular, not to win friends and influence people, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, if Jesus said that to you and you didn't know this in advance, could you just imagine the sinking feeling in the pit of their stomach? Because you're thinking, all right, wait a minute. He sends us forth as, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep are prey. They're, they're not able to defend themselves. They're not very fast. They're not very strong. I mean, they can kind of headbutt you and knock you over, but compared to a wolf... Wolves, they hunt in packs. Sometimes you find a lone wolf, and they're vicious. They have teeth. They're larger than a coyote. They're larger than a fox. They're the size of a large dog, but at the same time, they're feral, and they're not housebroken. You can't train them to do this or that. Wolves are vicious creatures. We're not wolves. We're the sheep. Now, there's a lot of people in their rhetoric today that like to refer to themselves as wolves in the midst of sheep, you know? And I'm always like, wait a minute. You don't understand what the Bible says about that metaphor. Don't go around saying, oh, I'm the wolf. I mean, understand what you're saying when you say that. Jesus talks about false teachers that creep into his flock, and inwardly they are what? Ravenous wolves. What does a wolf do to a sheep? Stalks it, it pounces on it, and it kills it. And it eats it. That's what the wolf does. Now, in this metaphor, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Are we the wolf or are we the sheep? As much as we probably think we'd like to be Mr. Tough Guy Wolf, we're the sheep. We are the sheep. We are sent, these 12 men in particular, in first century Judea, are sent as sheep in the midst of wolves. As prey sent amidst a bunch of predators. He's telling them that there will be persecution for their faith. You won't escape it. You will not escape it. I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Over the past year, one of the insults that both sides of all the problems in our country right now have hurled at each other are, you're just sheeple. And what sheeple is, is a little creative way of calling someone people who is sheep, sheeple. If someone calls you sheeple, say, thank you, God bless. And you will confuse them, and they will go away. It is not an insult for a Christian to be called a sheep, and we should not call people sheep when we are mad at them. Because sheep is a good thing. I want to be a sheep. There's coming a day when Jesus comes again and he gathers all people before him and he separates them as a shepherd divides between his sheep and the goats. You know, in the Middle East, sheep and goats don't look as different as they do over here. Sometimes it takes a shepherd's eye to divide between the two. If you look at the sheep and the goats in the Middle East, 
They don't look like the sheep and the goats here. I worked at Oak Mountain State Park when I was in college, and we had a petting zoo. And we had full-size sheep covered in wool, and we had these tiny little miniature blue goats. And one of them was named Tinkerbell, and she had a little bell that, that rang everywhere she went, ding ling 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 this tiny little goat. And it was a beautiful little goat. That's not the Matthew 25 sheep and goats. When someone says, you're just a sheep, say, I'm just glad I'm not a goat. And then when they look at you like you have two heads, maybe that's an opportunity to share the gospel with them. You know, Jesus said he's coming back and the sheep are on the right hand and the goats are on the left. And the sheep go to be with him in glory and the goats are cast away from him into a place prepared for the devil and his angels. So praise God if I'm a sheep. I'll sign up for the sheeple. You want to call me sheeple? Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'd also add that every time the word sheep occurs with reference to a person in the Bible, it's talking about a child of God. Psalm 23, Psalm 100, John 10, Matthew 25, Matthew 9, here in Matthew 10. Sheep is a word that God consistently uses to refer to the people that are under his shepherding. In other words, they belong to him. They are his children. They are his beloved. They are his elect. He knows them. He chose them. He saved them. He quickened them. And he will house them in heaven forevermore. Praise God if you're a sheep. But the problem with being a sheep is that you're so often the prey of the predator. You're prey. You're victimized. People attack you. They harass you. They mock you. They scoff at you. Now, we'll see in just a moment. They don't do this because of you. Oh, we're not that important. We like to think that we are, but we're not. They do this because they hate your Christ. They hate the shepherd. And so because they hate the shepherd, they hate the sheep of his pasture. But he sends us as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore, therefore, because of this, as a sheep in the midst of wolves, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We'll come back to that. He continues, Beware of men, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this warning. They will deliver you up to the councils. There was a major council in that day known as the Sanhedrin, and it was a group of ruling elders among the Jews. And over and over, first Jesus, then the apostles, they're dragged before these wicked men. They're tried, they're beaten, they're arrested. Now, over and over in the examples, and this doesn't sit well with me so many times, as they're dragged before these men, these men don't fight back. Because I want to fight back. I want to defend myself. They didn't. Because they were harmless as doves. They simply go, as they're dragged before councils, they will scourge you in their synagogues. All of these individual little Jewish assemblies where the word of God was taught on the Sabbath day. They'll drag you to these assemblies and they will scourge you there. You, you know what a scourge is, right? It's where they strap you over a stump or some other object and they whip you across the back, the bare back with a whip. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Not just governors, but kings themselves. You will be dragged before, brought before the secular authorities because there will be periods of human history when it will be illegal to be a Christian and you will be arrested by the powers that be and you will be executed for that or at best imprisoned. You might be thinking, that's terrible, that's an outrage, that's an injustice. What can be done about it? Let me tell you what will be done about it. There's coming a day when in flaming fire the Lord Jesus comes again, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And in that day, in that moment, every wicked Caesar, every wicked president, every dictator that was cruel to the people of God, God will personally judge and he will avenge his people upon them. Mark my word. God is not mocked. 
I will repay. And yet his children are brought like sheep to the slaughter. In fact, that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. For thy sake all the day long, we are accounted as what? Sheep for the slaughter. And yet in all those things, we are more than conquerors. You see, we don't have our head on straight when it comes to this concept. It's contrary to human nature. It's contrary to what I've been taught my entire life. It's not the way that I want to handle things. But when that occurs and we are persecuted for our faith, God says we're more than conquerors. He says we'll be dragged. And He says we'll suffer with Christ as Christ suffered. So shall we suffer in those moments. But God will avenge. He will avenge His people. It's a battle that's not ours to fight but His and He will win. You'll be brought before kings and governors. But listen to what he says. When they deliver you up, take no thought how you, or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Now let me tell you, this has to do with persecution, not with sermon preaching. Okay? Believe me, there's a lot of thought that goes into what I'm going to tell you on Sunday morning and Wednesday night before I stand up and try to share a message with you from God's Word. And I hope it's apparent. I hope it's obvious. I hope it doesn't sound like I don't study or know what I'm talking about from Scripture or history or language or any other subject. Because we're to be informed people. We're to study to show ourselves approved unto God. I'm commanded to study. This isn't saying, don't worry, take no thought when you get up to preach. You just get up there and that hour will be given to you. You say, why would you even have to clarify that? Well, there's reason. Because there was a season in our people where ministers would get up and stand in the pulpit and look at the congregation until the word came. And then when the word came, they'd say, oh, that's it, and they'd start to preach. And it was whatever would hit their mind. That would be terrible to wait 45 minutes into a one-hour sermon, right? Do they go over if the word was delayed? That's nonsense. That's confusion. That's not what God sets forth in His word. This is not talking about sermon prep. Mark my word, the Holy Spirit is not speaking through me unless I'm reading God's Word. My words are not infallible. My words are not inspired. If my words were inspired, then you would need to add them to the back of this book. Did everybody just get chills up your spine? Because inspiration places something on the level of Scripture. Who might have that inspiration? Well, Peter, Matthew, Paul, John. Why might that be significant? Because these are the men that God used to pen the Scriptures. They had that ability when they were brought in Persecution. It is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Drawing from that, how do you know that what Paul and Peter and James and John and all these men wrote is as divinely inspired as the Old Testament? Because Jesus said right there the Holy Spirit will speak through these men. He's telling them that in that moment you don't have to worry about what to say. God will give you the words to say. In their case, the Spirit speaks through you. But I'm convinced also that when you're in persecution, it's not inspiration, but God will give you special grace in those moments. God will give you special grace in those moments. He tells them how bad it will be that brother shall deliver up brother to death and father the child and the children against their parents and cause them to be put to death. What a terrible season of life that was for the church. We don't experience that in today's time in America. But the first century in particular, these are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The nation of Israel hated Christ so much that parents would deliver their children to the magistrate. Children, their parents. Brother delivering brother to death because they believed in Christ. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. 
What's that talking about? Notice the next verse. When they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now obviously the coming of the Son of Man there is not the second coming of Jesus because all the cities of Israel had the Word of God preached in them. The Word of God went into Asia Minor. The Word of God went through Europe. And now the Word of God is being preached on the other side of the world in the United States of America. And Christ has not come, descended from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel. But the Son of Man's coming in that passage is not His second coming. But it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, as we've studied from the minor prophets, the phrase, the day of the Lord, can have reference to every time God personally judges a culture. When Israel was destroyed by Babylon, in the first century at the time of Christ, when Assyria came upon Israel... Who showed up at the Tower of Babel right before it fell? God Himself! Who does Abraham talk to before the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah? The Lord! When God judges a culture like that, I'm talking about pillars of fire, confusion that scatters men through the world, there's a personal appearance of Him. How might that personal appearance have looked before the destruction of Jerusalem? God Himself took on human flesh and dwelt among them. God made an appearance, the day of the Lord. And then they're judged. And this particular passage has reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. You won't even have gone through all the cities of Israel till Christ destroys. Now, how did He do that? Well, how did He destroy Jerusalem in the days of Jeremiah? Well, He sent Babylon. How was Israel destroyed? In the days of, shortly after Isaiah, the Assyrians. How was Babylon destroyed? God causing it to be. He sent the Medo-Persians. How does God destroy Jerusalem? The Romans. And that's what that passage is talking about. It is a time of trouble. You go and you preach. God deals with the nations. I didn't write that down. It just came to mind. But I want you to remember it. We worry about preaching, and we leave the nations to God. We leave the rulers to God. God will judge. My job is to preach this gospel. Now, let's go back to verse 16. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, as a sheep surrounded by wolves. Don't you need to know how to live in this life? Don't you wish there was some sort of wisdom, divine wisdom, communicated to you through the gospel to know how to be a lasting sheep who is not devoured by the wolves that are around you? Praise God, Jesus gave us wisdom. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. When I was a, a liberated preacher, actually it was shortly before I was liberated, there were some issues in the, the church that I was a member of, and it was one of those things that it was a little bit of, of tension there. And one of my mentors shared with me from the book of Proverbs chapter 2 that discretion shall preserve thee. Discretion shall preserve thee. Discretion shall preserve thee. Understanding shall keep thee. Proverbs 2.11. Being discreet, discretion shall preserve thee. That's the wisdom of Proverbs, and it's the wisdom of Matthew 10, 16. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, again, the man that steps on your toes does so with bruised feet. I'm not always wise as a serpent, and I'm certainly not always as harmless as a dove. None of us are. But I want that statement to be burned into your frontal lobe so that it is a part of your thought process, so that you know how to navigate this world surrounded by wolves as a defenseless sheep. Wise as serpents. The interesting thing to me in this passage not only is it a combination of two very unlikely creatures and their behavioral patterns in advice, wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, but that there would be a positive reference in Scripture to a serpent. 
Sometimes Christ does this. There's a parable in Matthew 13, just three chapters over, that talks about the growth of the kingdom being compared to leaven hidden in a lump. Well, that's the only positive reference to leaven in the entire Bible. Every other reference is negative. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, warning about sin in a congregation. Leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. It's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. And yet in that passage, he compares the growth of the church to leaven, which is relevant for today's message because we have first talked about the growth of the church in the world. We go to a place, we preach the gospel, we're received, we draw them into a central location, and then we begin to branch out from there everywhere we go. It goes viral, as it were, in the underground. Now, this is wisdom for sheep who are spreading the gospel in the underground. Snakes are sneaky. I guarantee you there are times in your life that you have walked past countless coiled serpents hiding under the leaves, hiding under a bush, under a stump, or a fallen tree, and you never even knew it. You find a snake in the middle of the woods, and what's it doing? It's usually coiled up somewhere hiding. And if you bother it enough, fight or flight takes over. Most of the time they try to get away, unless you're dealing with one of those evil, wicked, reprobate, godless water moccasins or copperheads that will chase you across the yard. As a land surveyor, we came across so many snakes. And any one of them that we came across that had rattles, it did not survive the encounter. We took one home one time that if you picked it up, you could hold it here and its rattles would touch the ground. Out there sunbathing on the middle of the rock. Whatever did it do to you? It was there. That's what it did. I disapproved of its existence, and so it no longer exists. Be wise as serpents. Serpents have a very advanced fight-or-flight instinct. And by that, I mean they know when to hide, they know when to run, they know when to strike. Now, how might we strike? Again, the last part of that is be harmless as doves. Jesus doesn't intend us to strike in physical altercation, but how does the Christian strike? What is the only offensive weapon in the armor of God that a Christian is to wear? The Word of God. The Gospel. We are to be wise as serpents knowing when we ought to share the Word of God with people. When to lay low and to let the Wolves pass by. When to flee and to run to another city. What does Jesus say just a few verses later? When they persecute you in this city, flee ye to another. A snake knows when to run away. A few weeks ago, I heard all this commotion out by my air conditioner. And my older cat, which is a rescued cat, she was feral. She's far more cat-like in the hunting and the catching than the other cats that we have. They're lazy and sorry and spastic. I hear all this commotion, and I run around there, and she's just going at it with this snake. I mean, and it's trying to get away, and she's pawing it and slapping it and clawing it and having the time of her life. I don't know what type of snake it was, so I just grabbed a machete and started jabbing it in the hole it went into. It went under the concrete my air conditioner sits on, and I just jabbed it in as much as I could and crammed a bunch of mud in there so it could never get out if it did survive because I don't know what type of snake it is. It looked like a bad one. It wasn't black with a yellow stripe, and it wasn't green. So, you know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It's trying to get away. Snakes know when to get away. Jesus tells us to learn a lesson from snakes in nature on when to strike, when to hide, and when to flee. As a sheep in the midst of wolves, we need to know that. Now, how might that look in real life? And I know that we only have about five minutes left. In the book of Acts, in Paul's ministry, in Acts 9... Shortly after God changed him on the road to Damascus and he becomes a follower of the Christ that he once persecuted, some of his former associates wait for him outside the city and they're going to kill him. They're going to absolutely kill him. Word comes to Paul. You know what they do? They lower him out a window in a basket and he escapes another way. That's being wise as a serpent. 
You say, well, that sounds like the coward's way out. Shouldn't you go and face them eyeball to eyeball? Well, that's the way some of us like to operate, myself included. But what Paul does to escape the persecution and continue his ministry is to escape another way. That happens to the messengers in Jericho. I was reading the life of David recently when King Saul was out of his mind before David goes on the run. David's wife... Michael lowers him down in a basket outside a window, and he flees another way. Jonathan comes up and he says, if if dad's still trying to kill you, I'll let you know, by the way, I shoot an arrow and send a servant. And he sends word to David that way that Saul was after him. They're wise as serpents. Wise as serpents. There's intention, there's wisdom, there's strategery. When Paul was being beaten, in two different cases, but Acts 22 is probably the shortest account. They beat him. They're about to scourge him. And he says, do you scourge me uncondemned being a Roman? Now, do you think Paul took pride in his citizenship as a Roman? Everything Paul had that he counted worth anything was in Christ. He utilized every right that he had to defend himself and keep himself from being unlawfully beaten and apprehended. They're about to Scourge him. They're literally strapping him down before they whip him across his back. And he says, do you scourge me uncondemned being a Roman? And immediately they back up. Wait a minute. We didn't know you were a Roman. You see, you can't beat a Roman uncondemned in that day. Paul utilized his rights. In Acts 23, when the Pharisees and Sadducees brought Paul to apprehend him and arrest him, you know what he does? He starts a debate between the two factions over the resurrection so he can get away. And so he can have the focus shifted from him to them. He says, for the hope of the resurrection have I been brought because these Sadducees deny and these Pharisees agree with it. Paul was wise as a serpent. There are so many ways this can work itself out in our personal lives, but be wise as a serpent. Lastly, At the same time, we're to be harmless as doves. There used to be a dove that would sit on the roof of my house, and I always took it as a sign of peace because it would just sit over on the the very tip top of my roof, and it would be right on the edge, and it would just coo. There was a little bit of irony with that because we went through a period of trouble, and all of a sudden I noticed it was a mockingbird, and I kind of wondered if it was an omen. But I'm always comforted to see a dove. You know, there's just biblically, there's no more peaceful of an animal than a dove. You know, when Noah's in the ark, what does he send out? Brings back an olive branch. What does the Holy Spirit descend in the form of over Christ at his baptism? A dove. In Song of Solomon, what's the word that's used there? My love, my dove, my undefiled. Doves in the Bible are very insignificant. Jesus tells us to be harmless as doves. When Peter was viewing the arrest of Christ in John 18, what did Peter do? Oh, he's a man after my own heart here. They come to arrest Jesus. Judas kisses him to betray him with a kiss. They've got lanterns. They've got torches. They've got weapons. The high priest's servant is standing there. The high priest is the main instigator of all of this with Judas, the betrayer. Simon Peter, John 18.10, drew a sword, smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. Clean off his head. Now, your parent, those of you that are parents, you know how head injuries bleed? I say those of you as parents. Maybe your kids aren't spastic and feral. Head injuries bleed. Could you imagine someone having their ear knocked off the side of their head with a blade? It had to be a, a loud messy fiasco of commotion. Jesus picks the ear up, puts it back on the man's head, and heals him. He healed one of the men that came to arrest him. Talk about being harmless as a dove. And he looks at Peter. Peter, put thy sword into thy sheath. The cup my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Peter was willing to die in a blaze of glory fighting for Christ. It wouldn't be but a few short hours that he would deny him because he didn't want to suffer as a martyr. 
Jesus would tell him, as recorded in other gospel accounts, they that live by the sword shall die by the sword. We're not a band of armed rebels as Christians. We're to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, carrying the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, sharing the gospel everywhere we go as an underground society that permeates through all the world, transforming it through its influence, being hated by it all the while. To be clear, the gospel brings a sword, that is to say division. Jesus said, I come not to bring peace a sword. And that was very clear in this account in Matthew. But let me just say this as we're harmless as doves. We have to be careful not to injure others with our words. And this hits. It stings. It stings. Our wives, husbands, children, our friends... Other Christians, people we don't agree with, folks that we argue with, strangers on social media. Why do we do that? I don't know. I think I'd learn. Let the truth offend if the truth offends. But I have to be careful not to say things that I say in truth in an offensive way and injure the heart of one of God's people. And it's so very difficult. The way that you can achieve this, to the best of of my advising, is to strip yourself of every bit of emotion except for love for the person that you're talking to and to simply proclaim the facts as they are. There's a certain degree of naivety there. You're, You're open and exposed and you're just sincerely with a wholesome heart just laying it out there for someone and they may hate you for it. They may get offended that you said it at what you said. We have to be careful not to be offensive in the way that we say it. The only caveat, the only time when this wasn't what the Lord did is when he was talking to the false teachers, the Pharisees, in which case he raked them over the coals. There are times when we quit like men and we stand up and you say, no, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to tolerate that. But as we share the word as sheep surrounded by wolves, we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle. As we share the word to those that oppose themselves, lest God peradventure give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, but the word of the Lord, the servant of the Lord rather, must not strive. We don't argue and scream and debate and fight. We simply present. We present it in love. And if if I share the Word of God without love in my heart for you, I am a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. I'm a noisemaker. I'm a noisemaker. Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 that as a nurse cherisheth her children. We've had two babies born in this congregation this week. Babies on the brain. As a mother nurses her children, so was Paul gentle among the Thessalonians. He loved them. He was gentle to them, just like a mom nursing her suckling child, giving them the milk of the Word. It's a beautiful metaphor for sharing the Word of God. We find great examples of both of these principles with Paul and Peter and in the writings of the apostles and the epistles that they wrote. We won't find a better example of being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove than we find in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever your subject, run as quickly to Him as you can. These men are great examples, and there are so many that we could share from our own personal experiences, but the man above all men who was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be more like Him. Here in His wisdom as we go forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we confess, first of all, that we don't do this right. We haven't gone and shared the gospel the way we ought to. We haven't preached as much as we could. We haven't gone everywhere saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but we've been sidetracked and distracted with every care and concern of this life. Help us, Lord, to put the kingdom, well, as you said, to seek first the kingdom of heaven.
put it first in our lives and all that we do and our emphasis and our focus and our affections, worshiping you in spirit and in truth in the kingdom of heaven that is at hand in this day. Lord, help us to be wise as serpents. Help us to know when to share. Help us to understand that there are unreasonable and wicked men in the world that have not faith and that we are to avoid certain people and that we are to preach to others. Help us, Lord, to know when to lie low. Help us to know when to flee. But Lord, above all, help us to be harmless as doves. In a world full of offense and offending, let us be harmless. We know, Father, that your son was harmless. There was no guile in his mouth. He was undefiled. He was meek. He was lowly. He was loving. He was caring and compassionate. Help us, Lord, to be like your dear son and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for the forgiveness of sins, and we pray this in his name, and we say amen.